This is the best, 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 best practices in education and Odyssey School podcast. Let's fly away in a cloud. We'll go down to Odyssey. We'll learn some cool new things and new opportunities. Because Odyssey is made of magic, made of magic. This podcast aims to offer professional resources, practical tools, and inspiring conversations to teachers and parents in their quest for excellent education. And the trees are rainbow, and you'll see the corn every now and then because that's not weird at all. Welcome to Episode 4 of Best Practices in Education, an Odyssey School podcast. I'm Corey Adams, and I'll be your host this week. Today, I'm interviewing kindergarten teacher Mary Virginia Bunker. A born and bred storyteller, Mary fills the days of her students with mythic lessons taken from folktale and legend. Inspired by Joseph Campbell's work describing the cultural basis of the hero's journey through myth and folklore, she believes it is through learning ancient stories that truths of personal power, justice, and interpersonal understanding are embodied. Mary Virginia is a graduate of Loyola College of Maryland with graduate-level work in special education. She's also earned a Master's of Appalachian Studies from Appalachian State and a Master's of Library and Information Science from UNCG. In 2011, she completed a post-master's level degree from Notre Dame of Maryland University. Mary, thank you for joining us on Best Practices. Thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to it. Today, we're going to talk about the kaleidoscope of magical thinking in early childhood. I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Can you share exactly what you mean by the phrase magical thinking and what about the topic remains so exciting to you, a career kindergarten teacher? When some people think of magical thinking, they think about the magic of children's books or the imaginative play of younger children who want to be an astronaut, a wilderness explorer, or anything else their heart desires. While that is a component of magical thinking, that's not all there is. On its most basic level, magical thinking with young children often involves an intuitive sense in which the child perceives that there's some sort of correlation between their interior world, imagination, thought, even a spoken word, and an exterior outcome. This perception can be given or received by a young child in a way that may feel like a magical spell has been cast. Some of the material in magical thinking is kaleidoscoped from a misunderstanding of words or meanings, fragmented memories or experiences, conversations or imagination. It often involves a deep sense of wish fulfillment. The dreams, images, archetypes from fairy tales or favorite stories. A sense of self-generated factual knowledge that may or may not be true. A desire for special powers and relationships, maybe connections with people or beings or animals that have special powers. A magical explanation of causality. Magical thinking, one of the reasons that I love having magical thinking and working with five-year-olds is five-year-olds embrace and embody such a creative sense of who they are and what they can do. And the magical thinking is a way where that interior and that exterior becomes so deeply aligned, there's almost no difference between the two of them. Wow, that's so interesting. I know 
in working with you, one of the things I really enjoy is how you are able to draw on your breadth of experience. So I'm wondering, do you have a few examples over the course of your career of the way you have seen magical thinking manifest in your students? Well, like I started out, magical thinking can involve creative children's books and imaginative play of of being this or being that. There's both positive and less positive facets of magical thinking that unfold on a continuous basis. A child who imagines that his or her blocks have become castles and kingdoms is engaging in magical thinking. A child who says to his mother that his little brother drew on the wall with a marker is actually magically creating a cognitive reality for himself where it was his brother's artistic actions that painted the green wall black rather than his own actions. The proverbial monster under the bed is usually based on some of the interior facets of magical thinking as it interfaces with the unfolding ability to imagine, to face fears, and to develop abstract thinking. Magical thinking can be experienced by a young child in ways in which he or she takes actions and words very literally or even personally. If a, kid in cl- if a child in class calls um, a younger child a chicken or a turkey, that other child may actually turn around and begin to cry or maybe even look in the mirror to see if the other child's words actually turn them into a turkey because magical thinking creates such a sense of reality that if they believe it to be true, it is true. If I said it, it is true. If I took it, it belongs to me. So there are both positive and less positive components to magical thinking. Yeah, that's definitely my experience. With my oldest son, I remember at around this age, five years old, he was too worried to wear his Robin Hood costume because he believed that when he put it on, he would become Robin Hood, and then we would also think that he was Robin Hood, and he would no longer be his self. That's exactly magical thinking. Yeah, so can you tell me more about why you believe magical thinking is so developmentally important? Well, while magical thinking may involve many things beyond fairies and imaginations, I believe that developmentally-based magical thinking is an absolutely necessary developmental life skill in terms of learning to identify personal desires. I want this. I want to make this happen for myself. It's a way of making meaning of the world. It's a way of self-soothing and self-comforting and managing intense emotions. It's a way of developing a sense of interior self-reliance and security. It's a way of finding connections and relationships in the interior world. It's a way of visualizing personal wishes and wish fulfillment. So are there people whose work informs your thinking about the topic and, and who are they? The two people whose work most informs my thinking about the topic, um, back in 1959, Selma Freyberg wrote um, The Magic Years, Understanding and Handling the Problems of Early Childhood. She was probably the, she, she has informed my thinking from the very beginning of my teaching career. And she has a lot of things to say about how magical thinking is creates this magical world and that younger children are in themselves magicians because of this ability to create a thought 
and then try and put it outward and embody it. So she is probably the first. And then um, Barry Brazelton, who was also one of my favorites and has been for years, um, developed much of his thinking on the work based on Selma Freiberg. So I'm curious what happens or what your opinion is and your informed thinking is about what happens when children don't hit that developmental milestone. What does that actually look like? Well, I think a lot of Erickson's theory would support that when children don't do a developmental task at one stage of development, it often uh, permeates into the next stage of development and it just keeps unfolding in ways that don't still have the integrity of the earlier developmental stage. And so I think that what's going to happen with the magical thinking is, is that it's going to become more challenging for children to, recon- paradoxically enough, for them to be able to move into reality and abstract thinking because they haven't gone through the necessity of the magical thinking stage. And so I think the magical thinking stage, when parents are concerned that their children don't understand the difference between reality and fantasy, I think they need the fantasy and the magical thinking developmentally before they can actually move into a stage of separating out fantasy and um, reality. And. In terms of your experience as a classroom teacher and also in serving on an elementary team for years and years, I'm curious where your perception is about kind of the end of that window of magical thinking in a normative developmental situation. Well, I think it's a continuum. So it's going to it's going to move from it's going to look very different for toddlers than it's going to look for kindergartners, which is going to look very different than for first graders. I think by age eight, they've begun to move out of it, although there's probably some still a little bit of it there. But I think that by um, it is a continuum. And depending on the child's needs and their family life and a lot of other things, um, the uh, I, I would believe that the window would end sometime around age eight. So can you share a few strategies for engendering opportunities for magical thinking in the classroom? So what is it that you and your teaching partner do to create those magical moments? Because I know that there are a lot of those moments in your classroom. Well, one of the things is having been a storyteller, the fairy tales, the folk tales, the mythologies give children a sense of resonance with that magical, imaginative world that's so transcendent and so archetypal and beyond anything that would happen on their day-to-day life. A lot of our thematic units are drawn on the pageantry and the the human experience of um, what makes us most essentially human. So we're, we're right now working on the medieval renaissance, and even though that that might feel like it's not a kindergarten topic. We're doing it in a way that's developmentally appropriate and involves a lot of play and the different types of play and imagining and making pictures in your head and creating a lot of art projects and things like that that support um, creativity and magical thinking and um, celebrating your imaginative 
imaginative collaborative play with others and bringing them into that world that you have. And so that's one way. Another way that we do with um, it, with some of the less than positive aspects of magical thinking, one of my go-to questions is not, why did you do that? Because a five-year-old can't necessarily answer, why did you do that? Um, my go-to question is, what were you hoping would happen when you did um, whatever that behavior was? Because if I have asked that question, that question gives me more information um, from the child, and then I can address the actual desire, the magical thinking that brought the child to that choice, that behavioral choice. For example, if someone, if I ask that question for someone who's just hit somebody else, the other child might say, the child who was doing the hitting might said, well, I hit her because I thought she would laugh and want to play with me. Now, that's not an adult logic rational choice, but in the kid's magical thinking, they thought that that would happen. Years ago, I once had a child who took a goldfish out of the aquarium, and when I said, what were you hoping would happen when? Um, the child broke down tears and said, well, I took the goldfish out of the bowl because he looked lonely. So I think <laughs> there's an aspect of magical thinking that we need to figure out how as adults to ask the questions that support that child's imagination and their, that logic that baffles, confuses, and often amuses adults. Yeah, I love that example. Thank you for sharing. I, I want to circle back to something in the pr first part of your answer to my question and just dive a little deeper, which is, can you tell us a couple of the stories, like specific stories that you're using um, about medieval European culture right now? So what are some? Well, um, I have a real strong fondness for the stories of King Arthur and the stories of the round table and... So, of course, the story of the sword and stone and um, uh, children's experiences of that story are going to be radically different than an adult hearing that story. So for a child who might be hearing that story, um, their fascination is going to be with the magical components of how a teenage boy was able to get a sword out of the stone and what was it that was in the stone that made that possible where there were fairies holding it too tightly and that's why nobody else could pull it out um, we're also looking at some of the stories of the Knights of the Round Table and talking about some of the um, some of the stories of how Arthur and his knights interacted and the kinds of magical creatures and magical beings that they saw. For example, right now, we, were talk we, we spend a lot of time talking about the hero's journey and risk-taking and perseverance. And one of the stories is about a knight who's on the side of a bridge facing a griffin. And when the griffin is first seen by the knight crossing the bridge, it's very large and very almost ferocious looking. And the knight doesn't want to cross the bridge. If, however, the knight actually takes a deep breath and walks across the bridge, that griffin gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less ferocious until it's about the size of a yippy little lap dog. And so the kids begin to see that part of their journey is facing their own fears. 
That's great. That's a great example. So it sounds like for teachers who might be listening out there, you would really direct them to look at what units they are working through and then search for source material that would be imaginative and mythic and playful for them to access as they're considering how to find those same opportunities for their students. I would also encourage them to think about what is the logic behind the child's choices that might be very different than the adult logic that they as teachers are, are looking at when they're witnessing this. And also to make sure there's a lot of room for imaginative play of all different types of constructs. So constructive play and narrative play and um, uh, complex play and mastery play and really deep di- let children deep dive into the play experiences because that's where they're going to manage their own emotions, learn to self-soothe, learn to make that transition with the, with the fantasy world and make it very real, learn to embody it. And then as it fades away, they will still have the memory of a very happy childhood. That's a lot of play. I love hearing you think about play, and I could talk to you all afternoon about it, but I think we're just about out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to share in closing for teachers as they're thinking about this topic? I would ask teachers to um, go into magical thinking by learning to respect the developmental tasks related to magical thinking in that continuum asking authentic questions to support children in recognizing their own magical thinking, engaging in identifying and working for desired outcomes, and so much about magical thinking is about causality. Um, I would ask teachers and parents to generate and support meaningful conversations and realize that a lot of the discipline tasks that a child is undergoing are actually a result of magical thinking, not defiance or something else, and find practices that support authentic social-emotional growth at different developmental stages. That's so true, Mary Virginia, and it's a good reminder for us as educators and also really for those of us who are parents, too. So I want to close today by just saying thank you so much for sharing your expertise and wisdom with us, Mary Virginia. Thank you. I was delighted to be here. Please join us next week as we interview another incredible teacher. This has been Best Practices in Education, an Odyssey School podcast. It was recorded here in our music studio in Asheville, North Carolina at Odyssey School, engineered by our music director, River Gargarian, and the original theme music was created by the Misfits of Cragberry, an Odyssey student band. Let's fly away in a cloud